The reading today is from Proverbs 5 and a selection from Proverbs 30. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. This is God's word. Hey everybody, welcome. How y'all doing? Maybe you could tell for the reading, I'm gonna have your, your undivided attention because we're gonna talk about sex, okay? Yeah, sex in church. I never heard about it in church. Uh, get all your blushing, giggling out, eyes straight ahead. Uh, we're going to talk about it because it's in Scripture. We just read it. And uh, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and I learned um, whenever you talk about these three subjects, people have your undivided attention. Uh, sex, the end times, and will there be sex in the end times? Those are the three messages people all want to talk about. Um, now, the two places we should talk about sex, we don't. One is church, and the other is the home. Uh, I love this quote, and I've kept it for a long, long time. It talks about the church, and the church is not always taught this well. This is from an ancient monk. Between the 3rd and 10th centuries, the church issued edicts to forbid husbands and wives having sex on Thursdays. Here's the reason why. Because that was the day Christ was arrested. Couldn't have sex on Fridays because that was the day of his death. And then on Sundays, out of remembrance for the saints, you couldn't have sex. And eventually the church said, because there was this kind of suspicion about sexuality, the church said no sexual relations between husbands and wives during the 40 days of Lent, the 40 days of Advent, and the 40 days of Pentecost. You know where this is going. Uh, Philip Yancey said they added so many fast days and holidays to the list, he noted that to reach the point where if you really follow the church rules, not the Bible, there were only 44 days a year uh, that were available for marital sex. Uh, some of the guys are thinking, geez, I'm glad I wasn't born during the Middle Ages. And the ladies are thinking, can we get that calendar in the bookstore? <laughs> Only joking. As I said, I never heard about sex in church. If I did, I heard that it was bad. Um, that it was dirty, and you ready for this? It was only for procreation. And so where I live, we had 10, 8 kids on the block. People really got that idea. Uh, the Bible has so much more to say. We just read in Proverbs uh, that a man should be satisfied with his wife's sexuality all the days of his life. And one of the things the Bible tells us is, yes, there's procreation, but sex was intended for pleasure. That's a big idea in Proverbs. It's a big idea in the Bible. It doesn't take long to read the Bible to understand it talks about human sexuality and we would expect it to. There's five things we find in Genesis 1 and 2 that make you, human beings unique. One is we're made in the image of God. You can never forget that. Uh, not only the angels have this experience. In fact, they look into our salvation. They can't understand why God made us in his image. 
we are made male and female. And there's a beauty in masculinity. There's a beauty in being feminine. Jesus corroborated that. He said, have you never read or have you read from the beginning? God made them. They, they didn't evolve. God made them male and female. And he made them that for a reason. Uh, Genesis tells us they were naked. They were to be fruitful and multiply. That's sexual relations. And, and here's the part that we lost. They were unashamed. There was no shame in sex. There was no hiding. It was all above board. Now, the fall marred all that, but two things we took from the fall were marriage and human sexuality. God has redeemed it. Now, we live in a fallen world, and uh, we have to look at how these things are redeemed. But again, sexuality is one of the great gifts God has given to the human race. Genesis 1 and 2 clearly tells us that you and I were made for intimacy. Billy Graham said after 50 years of ministry, he thinks the greatest plight of the human condition is not drugs, drugs or alcohol or any of those things. It's loneliness. You and I were made for intimacy. We were made for connection on so many levels, but there is this one level, sexual intimacy, reserved for a male and a female within marriage that God created in all its wonder. We were created as sexual beings. It's an integral part of the human experience, whether you're male or female, you're tall, short, brown or white, whatever you are, here's the important thing. It does not define us. We live in a culture today where sexuality defines who you are. You walk in an office or you walk in any public sphere and for some reason our sexuality seems to be what precedes us. Well, our identity, as you know, is in Christ. And by the way, Christ was single. Christ never had sexual relations. And he had a wonderful identity in the Father. He had wonderful relationships with the 12 and with others. So even though we're going to talk about sexuality, it is not what defines you and me as human beings, although it is a part of our lives. Now, we're gleaning from Proverbs, these big ideas. We read from chapter 5 and chapter 30. Um, this idea is in many parts of Proverbs. We can't get there. But what we're looking at is how can we get wiser in sexuality? And it's not just you. Remember, we're a church. We live in a culture. So when we talk about sexuality, we're not talking about you and just your life, although I'm sure God will speak to you in that regard. But, but how do we speak about sexuality from the wisdom of God? How, how does it flow from us? We're the church. We're, we're the salt and the light. We're the preservative. And as I shared, one of the reasons we're going to talk about it today is because a big idea in Proverbs is that sex was intended for pleasure. Obviously procreation, but certainly pleasure. Anybody who doubts that, look at the illicit sex industry. It wouldn't exist if there wasn't pleasure. There's even pleasure in adultery. The Hebrew says all sin is pleasurable for a season. So there is tremendous pleasure that comes with sexuality. The Bible has a lot to say about it. And thankfully, there is one book also written by Solomon, the author of Proverbs, that really opens the door to our human sexuality. It's called the Song of Songs or Solomon's Song. And we just read in Proverbs uh, that a woman's breast should satisfy a man all the days of his life. And you think, oh man, the Bible's chauvinistic because it's always talking about you know, what the man gets out of this. Well, I'm going to read you the opening of the Song of Songs, chapter 1. This is so provocative, Jewish moms wouldn't let their sons read it until they were bar mitzvahed. Song of Songs opens, this is a woman saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Why? For your love is better than wine. 
Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you, draw me away. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. But my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. I guess in that culture, that was beautiful. Going down to Mount Gilead. How about this one? Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one which bears twins, and none of them is barren. Your lips are like scarlet, and on and on it goes. And because of verses like this, and because God's never mentioned in eight chapters, this almost never made it into the Bible. But the rabbis fought for it. And one rabbi, Akiba, probably said it best when he said, that the Jews never questioned the sanctity of the Song of Songs, for all the world is not worth the day when the Song of Songs was given to Israel for all the Scripture and all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. And the reason why is because we are spirit, soul, and body. Remember, Gnosticism in the era of the early church, and it goes back to the Greeks, was the idea that to attain the spiritual, you had to do away with the physical. That's why sex was seen as, as dirty, because it was a physical act. We're going to see by the end of this that sexuality and the physical can lead us to an understanding of the spiritual. The church almost lost this idea with the early church fathers, men like Origen, who began to allegorize scripture and looked at the Song of Songs and didn't agree with the rabbis that this was a human expression of love, but saw it as Christ's love for the church. Now, I think that's true, but I don't think it's dominant in the Song of Songs. Uh, Origen actually castrated himself. Again, he became celibate because he thought, you know, sex was dirty. He was a church leader. He introduces celibacy. A celibacy that the past of celibacy in the church mandated is long. I'm going to talk about what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 7. But a lot of celibacy was to, to create an elite priestly class that was different from you and me. And it's led to a lot of suppression and a lot of what we're seeing today and a lot of fallout. The primary teaching of Scripture is that sex is holy. Now, we weren't taught this in the church. The other place we were never taught this, at least I wasn't, was the home. Maybe you guys did a better job, uh, but my parents never really talked about this, so we had to learn it everywhere else. Deuteronomy says that we should teach our children on the way, in the home, wherever we go. We are their primary instructors. I like to say it this way. Every Christian home is a seminary. It's a grammar school, a high school, a psychologist's office, a hospital, uh, everything your kids learn, they are to learn in the home and then it's second everywhere else. That's why Proverbs says, set them on a path they should go and in the end they will not depart from it. Tragically, this isn't the case in most of our homes in the United States. Uh, teenage girls were asked, what are the five top things you can't talk to your parents about? 36% uh, said they couldn't talk about suicide, 42% about their stress, 45% about dating, 49% that they were lonely, and a whopping 66% said I could never talk to my parents about sex and sexual issues. Where are they going to learn it? 
Boys were asked the same thing. What are the six things I can't talk to my parents about? 21% said stress, 21% drugs and alcohol, 35% failure, 53% pornography, 53% dating, 64% sex and sexual issues. And you wonder, why is this difficult to talk about in the home? Well, you know, my parents were not Christians. And the only thing I can deduce is they had their own problems, their own struggles. And so they weren't apt to talk about it. Uh, I probably didn't do the job I should have done with my children. I think we did an okay job. Uh, we sell in the bookstore books that will help you talk about sex as early as eight years old. That's how important it is. The home is the primary place we should be talking about these things. And we need to teach our kids sex is God's idea. One of the great things about doing family devotions, taking your kids through the whole Bible, maybe at dinner or another time, is you're going to hit every topic. You're going to get to Leviticus and you're going to see menstrual cycles. And instead of skipping that chapter, which is stupid, talk about it at the dinner, well, maybe not the dinner table, <laughs> but talk about it. It's in the Bible. It's life. People that grew up on a farm saw this stuff all the time. And we're so prudish now. We're so modern. We, well, they're going to talk about it with their friends later. So take advantage because the Bible is very clear. And if sex is God's idea, and if it was intended for pleasure, and if it's powerful for intimacy, certainly God put guidelines around it. And he did. Because God said there's something beautiful in this that will lead to a glorious end, and there's something harmful about this. And we've seen the devastation. This is so powerful, I can't think of any song, movie, book that doesn't have some form of romance or sex involved in it. Ellen Davis is the professor of, at Duke's Divinity School, taught at Union Theological Seminary. She's written a commentary on the Old Testament. She said, a holistic understanding of our own humanity suggests that our religious capacity, you have to think about this, is linked with an awareness to our sexuality. Isn't that interesting? The awareness of our own sexuality is, re, is related somehow to our religious capacity. She said, fundamental to both is a desire to transcend the confines of the self for the safety of intimacy with another. Here's what she's saying. She's saying all of us have this desire to kind of have an out-of-body experience where we get into someone else's life. And she said, human sexuality is the height of that. So think about a young couple who has not aroused or awakened love before its time. They've had no other sexual experience. And it's their wedding night. And, and there's just, a, a, just an innocence to that, right? And the first time they have a sexual experience, there's an ecstasy where literally they have given themselves fully to another human being. I think what Ellen Davis is trying to say is that's the ecstasy you can find in God. It's what I experienced when I accepted Christ as my Savior. When I read the Bible for the first time, there was that euphoria, almost that outer body of experience where I could be intimate with another human being at a level I had never experienced before. One of the tragedies is we've made sex a physical act and we made serving God religion. And I think what Ellen Davis is saying, there is a beauty and a wonder in both. Uh, today, sex is just an exchanging of fluids, and it's a physical act. Uh, what people don't understand 
is that there are tremendous implications, and Proverbs talks about them. So for the remainder of the time, I want to talk about how we can be wiser in our sexuality. And I'm going to share with you three things. And the first thing I'm going to share with you is that when the Bible talks about sex, it's always, always within the confines of marriage. Um, I want to read for you, you don't need to turn there, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? He said, certainly not. And he's talking about being aligned to the world. He says, or do you not know? Now watch, watch the parallel here. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? And then he quotes Genesis 2.18. For the two shall be one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now you've got to grab this. Um, Caleb Katenbach was here Wednesday. As, as I shared, just a remarkable testimony, raised by gay parents, becomes a Christian, becomes a pastor, and upholds the standard that all sex is in the bounds of marriage, a man and a woman. And we see here that when God said, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, they become what? One flesh, not one spirit, one flesh. Uh, we still have our own individual lives, but there is a bonding that comes through the sexual union. Now, Paul takes it a step further and says that if you have sexual relationships with a prostitute, you become one with her. What's he talking about here? What he's saying is that bond is real, and it happens whether you're with a person that you love and you're in a covenant with or not. This is why people that have one-night stands feel empty in the morning. Uh, this is why they have to keep sleeping with people over and over again. They're leaving pieces of themselves everywhere they go. That's why the Bible says don't arouse or wake in love before it's time. That's why when you see teenagers sleeping together, you ever hear people say, oh, they look like an old married couple? Yeah, because that unnatural bond has already formed. Now, the beauty of that and the analogy is that's how we become one with Christ. We are part of one body. Uh, some people ask me, Pastor Bob, who will you marry? I will never marry a believer to an unbeliever. Because in our church, we're trying to preserve and tell our teenagers that we, you know, we're not unequally yoked. But I will marry two unbelievers. Do you know why? Common grace. God gave marriage. Uh, it's certainly holy matrimony, but marriage is still marriage no matter who it is. So I'll marry two unbelievers because we see here in 1 Corinthians 6, I'd rather be involved with their wedding than somebody else. But we see here there is a bond that forms, a bond of intimacy. Now it's about this time where a wise guy or a girl comes along and says, ha, huh, marriage, just a piece of paper. Yeah, so is your $250,000 Harvard Harvard degree. And your Porsche, yeah, your title's on a piece of paper. And your home, piece of paper, your mortgage. And the last time I checked, the Constitution of the United States is a piece of paper. Marriage in biblical framework is a man and a woman, listen, in a covenant of companionship. What that means is there was a contract. That's a covenant. There were uh, vows exchanged. In fact, I'm marrying someone right after this service. 
And we're going to say for richer or poorer, sickness and health, all those things. And there will be witnesses here, and the covenant is also made before God. Proverbs is very clear on this, that the immoral woman forsakes the companion of her youth and the covenant of her God. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, says, you have dealt with your wife treacherously, for she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God invented marriage. It's the genius of God that gave us this institution. And therefore, sex becomes something that happens between a man and a woman under the confines of marriage, everyone else celibate. That's what marriage is. End of the story. We don't have to debate this for dominant culture. We don't have to debate this in the church. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card. I like what Caleb said. He said, you can quote the Bible out of context, and it's still a man and a woman in a covenant where vows have been exchanged. So sex is within the bonds of marriage. Scarlett Johansson, famous movie star, she's voted the sexiest woman every year, said, I just can't be monogamous. You know what she's saying? I just can't give myself fully to another human being. I can't care deeply. I can't suffer and care at that level with another human being. James Dobson wrote this essay. It's called For Better or Worse. He said, my friends, Keith and Mary have been married for more than 40 years. Shortly after their honeymoon, Mary was stricken with polio and became a quadriplegic. The doctors informed her that she would be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. It was a devastating development, but Keith never wavered in his commitment to Mary. For all these years, he has bathed and dressed her, carried her to and from her bed, taken her to the bathroom, brushed her teeth, and combed her hair. Obviously, Keith could have divorced Mary and looked for a new and healthier wife, but he never did or considered it. I admire this man not only for doing the right thing, but for continuing to love and cherish his wife. Though you and I will face less challenging problems, all of us will have our own difficulties. How will we respond? Some will give up on marriage for pretty flimsy reasons. If we're going to go the long haul, nothing short of an ironclad commitment will stain us when the hard times come. Let's review the vows spoken by millions during their marriage ceremonies. They read, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others from this day forward until we part. Keith and Mary said that, and they meant exactly that. There is this loving, caring bond that says we'll go through thick and thin, one of the greatest gifts on the planet, in a crazy upside-down world, you get another human being to travel through life with, and that is where intimacy begins. And it's not only sexual, but it plays out in the physical. So marriage is always the boundaries that God had for sexuality. The second point Proverbs makes is this. The consequences of illicit sex are irreversible. Now, back to Proverbs chapter 5, it says, Drink water from your own cistern. Many of you have never seen a cistern. Uh, in the Middle East where it's dry and arid, there's one on the screen. That's a large one. That's from Masada. That was Herod's palace. Of course, he did everything big. He had to have a big cistern. Um, many people had small cisterns. It was like a little reservoir. So when they had the early and latter rains, you would have enough water to sustain you in the dry times. Now, it says you should drink water from your own cistern. The idea there is uh, don't drink from someone else's. Now, 
I've read that all my Christian adult life. And then finally, I asked myself the question, why would I want to drink water from someone else's cistern? After all, it's just water, right? Like they don't have Coke or Diet Pepsi in theirs. It's just water. So why do I want to drink water from this cistern when I have one? Well, why did David, who Nathan said had all these flocks, go out and want one other man's little ewe lamb? Answer, because it's there. Okay? That's why we want it. Stolen water is sweet. And advertisers tell you every day that what's on the other side of the hedge is better than what you've got, right? Someone once told me the grass is always greener on the other side until you get over there and you find out there's crabgrass there too. Drink water from your own cistern. Verse 16 said, should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? You know, this beautiful thing God has given you, you're going to take it outside. And some commentators would say, well, these are wayward children that are going to be produced. Here, Proverbs says, female is like a deep well sexually, and a male is like a fountain, the fountain of procreation. What it's saying is sexual desire is real and it's normal. There is a sexual drive. We are sexual beings, and it has to be quenched. But the place where it's quenched is within a marriage relationship. May your wife always intoxicate you with her love. Now, this was like a nuclear bomb in the ancient world. The idea that you could be satisfied with one person did not exist. Uh, if there was marriage to one person, and, and this is still the dominant idea today, you have to be sexually fulfilled outside of that relationship. And so this was very powerful. And in the early church, and I'm going to get to this later, uh, where Paul writes, uh, actually allowed people to be single and validated. Singleness was validated by the early church. But when it says here, drink water from your own cistern, what it's saying is that marriage ends the choosing, okay? Think about it. When you marry someone and say, this is it, everyone else came off the playing field. And that's important because you're going to find someone more beautiful, someone more talented. I mean, every single day of the week, there are a lot of fish in the sea. Marriage says, though there's a lot of fish in the sea, this ends it all. Uh, there's a book called The Case for Marriage, a secular book, that gives you almost 50 reasons for the benefit of marriage versus living together or sleeping around and all. It's incredible from health to wellness to well-being to longevity of life. Again, not Christians, just secular people. And there is no marriage thought outside Scripture. Even though all cultures marry, it came here from the Bible. Verse 16 gives this. Should your fountains be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving Dear and a graceful doe, may her breast satisfy you all the days of your life and always be enraptured with her love. Why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman embraced in the arms of seductors? Now, this is written by Solomon, who had 600 wives, and his father David, who sinned with Bathsheba. But still upholding this paradigm of virtue. And by the way, those two men were never the same men after those acts. David was never the same man. And Solomon, again, I've, I've taught this before, has become an afterthought in Scripture. 
And so much of what we see in our dominant culture that has told us about free sex, we're seeing a lot of these things are irreversible. And, and think about this. Who wins in illicit sex? The powerful or the males in history? The losers are always women and children. Society loses. Everybody loses in this regard. And so once again, the Bible upholds something that is very powerful. One of my favorite movies is Anna and the King. Some of you have seen the musical. I like the movie with Jodie Foster. And so in the movie, there's the King of Siam. And he has a harem and many wives and many children. And he brings this feisty English woman in to teach uh, his children English and then the ways of England because the ways of England were the ways of the world. And these two are at loggerheads the whole movie because it's a culture clash, right? And there's this wonderful scene at the end where they're dancing together. He's wearing a tux and she's wearing a dress. Music is playing and they're dancing. And she said, you know, I've learned to dance with a king. And he said, and I've learned that you could be satisfied with the love of one woman. And it's just a beautiful scene because it's what God designed and this man saw it for all its beauty. This is God's design and when we move outside of God's design, we generally lose. The final thing, and we need to go to Proverbs 30 which we read earlier, is that the church has been called to redeem sexuality. The church has been called to redeem sexuality. We are countercultural in so many areas. You know, we steward the gospel message of salvation. Apart from Christ, you can't be saved. Do you realize the power in that message? You steward that message. You also steward something that I think could be the next revolution in America. True sexuality. What does true sexuality look like? We steward that message. Even though the dominant culture might laugh at it now, there's coming a day where they're not going to laugh. There are so many lonely, broken people in this area. And I think we can have a revival of human sexuality. Dan Allender said the underlying message is that sexuality is redeemed, that it's possible to enjoy God's good gift of sex in spite of sin, in spite of a fallen world. Now, this raises a million questions. What if I'm same-sex attracted? What if I'm single? What if I'm single again? What if I'm widowed? I mean, raises all kinds of questions. I brought up celibacy early. And the reason I brought it up is because in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, Paul said, I wish all men were as I am, single. He said, Paul said, I, I wish you all stay single. And uh, if we took that as the letter of the law, there would have been no church because it would have died out in the first 50 years. Paul said, I got this, not from the Lord. This is my idea. I wish you all were single. I wish we'd all go out and preach the gospel. I wish we were all unencumbered. But then he writes, but each of you has your own gift from God. Paul said some of you are going to get married. In fact, 99, not 99, 95% of you are going to get married. And that's a gift, right? You're going to enjoy that gift. Some of you are going to be celibate, Paul said, and that's a gift. Jesus said not many can accept this, so it's a little hard to understand, that there were eunuchs that were born that way, there were eunuchs that were made eunuchs, and there were those who chose to be eunuchs. 
What Jesus was saying is sexuality was a gift. It will not be experienced by everyone. Certainly until you get married, it's not experienced. If your spouse dies, it won't be experienced. And then some will actually choose that. They will see that as their calling. Chuck Swindoll's sister, many people don't realize this, has traveled the world. She's had her own ministry for almost 40 years. She wrote a book called Narrow My Bed and Wide My World. And she talks about how she has the gift of singleness and celibacy and all the fruit that has been born of that. That was a gift to her. So celibacy can be a gift, not forced on a group of men. We've seen where that leads. But in one's choosing, if God leads you that way, God will give you the gift of celibacy. He will, he will be the one who will fill your desires. When Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she wanted to talk theology. Um, Samaritans worship on this mountain. You Jews do this. Let's solve all the theological conundrums of the day. Jesus said, why don't we talk about sex instead? You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not even your husband. So what's the deal? And then he offered her living water. He said, you won't have to come to this well anymore. You will have out of your being wells of living water. Like the rich young ruler who was bound by materialism, like Nicodemus who was bound by religion, Jesus said, you are bound by sexual desire. You are trying to find love and you're looking in all the wrong places. Because there's an end to everything. There's an end to materialism. There's an end to sexuality. There's a dead end in religion for sure. And Jesus didn't condemn her. He offered her what we all need living water and intimacy with God. And then here's the key words. Go live a life free of sin. And I think that's a beautiful phrase because there are so many in this room who have been marred by sexual sin, either yours or someone upon you. And the beauty of the gospel is freedom. That all things are new in Christ and all things are put away. That there was a newness. This woman could walk in the newness of life. She, she was at the well because she was ashamed. She was there at noonday. The, the, the women would gather in the morning. Jesus said, you don't have to be ashamed. You can live a life free of this. And you can know your husband and your maker. As wonderful as the gift of sex is, it brings us to the ecstasy of a relationship with God to deep waters, the deepest of waters. And what Jesus was saying is there's something only God can quench in each one of us. In fact, if you're married here today, your sexual experience in marriage will never be what it needs to be if you're not right with God. If you're single, you'll never be the expression you were meant to be unless you're right with God. He has to be the first source of all desire and everything has to be quenched there that it might work out in intimacy with someone else. You and I were created for intimacy. We were created to connect. And within the bonds of marriage, sex is that union. It's wonderful, it's beautiful, but there is a step beyond that and it's to know the Savior and the creator of the world. So I think today is a great tune-up for all of us. If you're married, ask yourselves, ask your spouse, how's our sexual union? There's wonderful books out there intended for pleasure, love life for every married couple, 
Uh, there's so many things you could go through to talk about these things. Again, to make it satisfying all the days of your life. If you're single, there's things you got to walk through. Uh, as a church, we're a collection of all these people. When our kids were young, every Friday and Saturday night was spent at our house with singles because they still need a family. We all need intimacy. We need friendships. We need intimacy with God. And we certainly need intimacy within marriage. And so God and the Bible doesn't shy away from this. It opens the door wide and says, here is the way you were made this is Proverbs. This is the way you were made. This is how you excel. This is how you function. Now walk in the beauty of it. Certainly we fall, and God picks us up, and we live in a culture that's messy. I understand, but God's grace is bigger than all that. And we need to talk about it, and we need to grow, because it's very important. 